family back down in Tai Tai, so we brought in our two uh, visiting Roman scholars for this week, <laughs> Papa Fred and Carter Hart. But uh, big news over the weekend with Roe v. Wade um, being Kambala, so praise God for that. And um, we today will be looking at Romans 7, and uh, probably the first 12 verses, maybe through 13. Next week we will be off. And then we'll spend uh, the next two weeks finishing out chapter 7, probably spend two weeks on 14 to 25. So, if um, here, here's kind of the big question before we get going. Um, you guys can be thinking on a little bit, but in what ways is the law still binding on Christians? And in what ways are we free from the law? So chapter 6 uh, in chapter 7 function a little bit as a parenthesis to the argument here. But um, before I go any further, maybe we could pray. And uh, Carter, will you read the passage for us today? Chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, and then pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a, married per for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress, and she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life to, proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Father, thank you so much for all the good things that you've given us, for the special graces that you've uh, granted to us even this weekend and um, in our court system with uh, Roe v. Wade. Lord, I'm thankful that we are able to gather together without persecution, without fear of harm. Lord, I pray that you would give us great grace to help us understand your word through your spirit, help us to apply it, help us to build one another up. Help us uh, have a better view of who you are. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> Thanks, Carter. So when we think about the book of Romans, uh, the law is not a topic unfamiliar to Paul. He's used it some already, uh, but I think it comes up, one of the commentators said, 74 times just in the book of Romans alone, compared with 47 times in all of his other letters. And just in our section alone, uh, he mentions law or commandment about 14 times. 
And so I want to just look back at a few verses at uh, what Paul has said prior to this chapter about the law. So if you'll look back at Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then turn a page over to chapter 5, verse 20. <clears throat> Paul says, Now the law came and to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul's use of the law up to this point in chapter 7 is um, predominantly to say it cannot justify us. And we know this. It brings a knowledge of sin and is useless in giving us a right status before God. And I thought this, this summary from Stott was helpful just on Paul's use of the law, so I'm going to read that real quick. Um, Stott says, But in practice no human being has ever succeeded in obeying the law. Therefore it can never be the way of salvation. Instead the law reveals sin, condemns the sinner, defines sin as transgression, brings wrath, and was even added so that the trespass might increase. In consequence, God's righteousness has been revealed in the gospel altogether apart from the law, although the law helped to bear witness to it. And sinners are justified by God, not through obeying the law, but through faith in Christ. And so that helps us begin to think about the law a little bit. And you zoom up to chapter 6, which kind of funks, functions as a parenthesis of, of the larger section of chapters 5 through 8. And we looked back in chapter 5 on the assurance and the finality of salvation. And 5.1 um, began with, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then chapter 8 ends with this idea that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. And so in this gospel, there are a few questions that Paul deals with. In chapter 6, does the law promote immoral behavior? Because we're not under law. Uh, can we sin and live however we want? And then chapter 7, he is going to tackle this question of the law. Is it of no value? And Carter, you had a great thought earlier on the law. Like in the Jewish mind and the Jewish thinking, how does, where is this topic of the law coming from? So the law, I think it, to, in order to understand what Paul is getting at in chapter 7, uh, we have to go back even to the Old Testament and work our way towards the New. Um, in the Old Testament, you can go to Psalm, uh, Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. You could go to Psalm 119 and... You can see how a man guards his way by keeping it according to the word of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 6, the people of Israel, um, the Lord basically tells them, keep my commandments or be destroyed. The law all, all the way from the Old Testament is held in honor and dignity and it is exalted 
Um, and even in Paul's day, we see that in that while he goes to the temple in Acts, he goes to do the rites of purification, the rites of purification in order to sort of uh, meet the Jewish believers where they are. And the Pharisees come and they they grab him, and they they call him out, and they say that he teaches against the law. Now we see that the Pharisees they exalt the law to the point of where it is above the God who legislated it. They think that they can take the law and justify themselves by it. But even in light of chapter seven, introducing the the idea that we're dead to the law or set free from the law was completely going to turn the Jewish mind on its head and to like to have a statement that Paul has that we're not under law but under grace is to just put a like a stumbling block in the mind of the Jewish believer that they couldn't handle so he has to flesh it out in uh, in chapter 7 just to give a little bit more explanation yeah that's great Papa, what do you have for us here on the introduction? How does 6 and 7 and 8 kind of connect to each other? They really are in sync and, and, and work in parallel. And I, I'll show you what I, what I mean um, with, with just a few words. Uh, 7 is so closely tied to 6. Um, and so, like you said, Carter, he's, he's flushing it out. He's, he's developing his ideas. And, of course... Paul's never short on words. He, he takes his, his time, fortunately, for our benefit. Um, so Romans 6 is mainly about the tyranny of sin. You guys have already discussed that. But in 6, 14, and 15, uh, rather to our surprise, there's a reference to not being under the law, under the law anymore. <clears throat> in 6, 19, sin is described as lawlessness. So Romans 7 picks up and deals with some of the very same issues as 6, but it shifts the focus from the tyranny of sin to the powerlessness of, of sin. <clears throat> so in, in 6.2, we died to sin, and in 7.4, we died to the law. See the parallel there? We died to sin, we died to the law. In 6.21 and 22, we considered the harvest, literally the fruit of living under sin with Christ, and, and and then seven four and five we again consider the possibility of bearing fruit for God. Uh, the central theme of chapter seven is the law. Uh, and again, sometimes uh, you know we we talk about the the moral, the civil, the ceremonial laws, the, uh, the the Torah, the law, the law of Moses. But sometimes Paul uses it as a principle. It's just a rule. It's 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 the way we do things. So uh, sometimes you have to navigate that. But the central theme of seven is the law. The words law, like uh, you mentioned, Josh, that the, our commandment that appears, I think, 29 times in 25 verses. I assume this in seven. I didn't count them. In addition, the law is called the written code and the good thing or that which is good in several verses. And, and that's what you said, Carter. The, the, you know, to the Jew, the law was it. Was was everything, and I think that that was a good thing, but it was also a stumbling block to the Jews. That's why Paul had so much trouble everywhere he went, and ultimately sent him to Rome to his own death. 
because he never could satisfy uh, the Judaizers to the to the new covenant. Yeah. No, well, that's, if, if you're taking notes, I want to get through these first couple of verses so we can turn Carter loose on 4 to 6. But here would be an outline that Steve Lawson gave that was helpful to me for these first couple of verses from 1 to 6. One, he gives the axiom or the general principle. And then verses 2 and 3, he's going to give this marriage analogy. And then in verses 4 to 6, he'll apply it. And so I'm just going to go back through the verses and work through it. Um, verse 1, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long ha as he lives. And so the idea here is that the law is binding on a person while we're alive. And this is a, a universally uh, agreed upon principle. And um, while we live, we know that the law has jurisdiction on us, um, even just the laws of the land. Uh, while we are alive, those laws are applicable to us, just kind of in the same way that if you were to go live in another country, the country that you left, those laws are no longer binding on you. You're now uh, obedient to the new laws of the land. And it's almost like Paul is saying, for us to be free from the law, we must find a way to die and then come back to life again. Because when we're dead, we're no longer bound to the law. And that's exactly what he's going to do here in verses 2 and 3 through this analogy with marriage. Uh, verse 2, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And some of the commentators pointed out that in these verses, where, where you can go wrong is thinking Paul's teaching about marriage or um, you know, giving a marriage code here. He's not or his divorce aim. for that matter. Right, know, right. Or some some rudiment of marriage. Yeah. Right, and that's not his idea. He's simply giving this principle and making the point that the death of the husband frees the wife from the law that bound her to marriage. And he's saying the only way we're freed from the law is by death. So it's not about marriage. Uh, it's also the the. The illustration is not a direct allegory, you know, it's not like a one-to-one, -one, we're represented by the husband or anything like that. It's just making a general <coughs> principle uh, that um, we, the only way we're freed from the law is by death, just the, the same way that works through marriage and, and remarriage. So that brings us here to four to six, and Paul's going to make the application. Carter, could you help us walk through these verses and kind of explain to us what's going on in 4 to 6. Yeah. I think it's uh, important to acknowledge that at, fir at the first, at while we're dead to God and alive to sin, that the law, it cannot save us, but the function of the law, it does condemn us. So it cannot save us and it does condemn us. But in our, when we come to Christ and He transforms our minds and our hearts, He gives us new hearts, what He does is He withholds the power of the law once held to condemn us. So now he has, um, so now he has rescued us from the condemnation of the law. So here in verse four, Paul says, "Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ." And I agree that um, 
the law only applies to those who are alive. I think MacArthur gave a um, um, gave a picture of this. You don't you never see an officer giving a parking ticket to a corpse because the law doesn't apply to dead people. Um, so in our un- union with Christ, that I think Mr. Tyler Wiz- Williams um, went over in six. In our union with Christ, we are able to partake participate in in his death so that the law is no longer binding on us christ fulfilled the law we have his credit that he gives to us we have his righteousness so now the law no longer condemns us so now we belong to another who is christ to him who has been raised from the dead so not only are we in union with christ in his death but also in his resurrection um, to, to new life. And I think one pastor said that we are now married to Jesus Christ. Going back to the analogy of being married to a husband, he dies. We now are married to Jesus Christ who will live forever and he will never die. Our husband will never die and so we're secure. Going back to that main central theme, our main, our first major fruit of salvation is peace with God. Back to chapter five, right. in uh, Romans. Yes, something. No, no, that's good. Right, five one. Therefore, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Amen. So going down a little bit to Him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So we haven't been raised to just an empty life, but now we've been raised to the newness of life with Christ, the life he lives now. He lives to God. We're not, um, this is, I think this is fundamental that Christ reorients and completely shifts our, our lives. He changes it completely. You cannot be regenerate. You cannot be a Christian without true fruit. Um, you cannot have a true belief in Christ, a love for Him, a delight in God, and a wholesome desire to obey Him through His law without fruit bearing with that. You got it? Yeah, no, it's good. Um, Boyce, on this idea that uh, we belong now to Christ, going back a little bit to 2 and 3, says now that this comes with some privileges. We have access to God in prayer provision for all our needs and Jesus' personal care and protection because Christ is now our bridegroom. Carter, and I like what you said. Now we're saved to bear fruit for God, and this is our purpose in life now. We're um, saved so that we will walk in good works. Ephesians 2.10 says we're created for good works, that we should go and walk in them. And it's a direct contrast there in verse 5 that we were once bearing fruit for death. Papa, you got anything on four to six? Well, right there, I think he's he's, he's, he's showing us the way uh, uh, in six so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit. And so he's leading us really to how we live this life in eight, but the, the, the way of the Spirit and not in the way of the written code. So he's comparing the, the, old, the new covenant to the old covenant, really, because that's, that's really the difference between the two covenants is the spirit versus you know the law so uh, we were uh, we were unredeemed before we could not do that now we're dead we've been regenerated through Christ and we're a new person and now we can be wedded to this new husband 
who will uh, sustain us and 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 he's now now if we know from Hebrews he's our great high priest he's you know we have access to him we have forgiveness of sins uh, you know all the, the the benefits of the new covenant so. Doug Moose says it like this that talking about verse 4 he says this is the heart of the paragraph believers have suffered a death in relationship to the law a death that frees them from the law and enables them to enter into a new relationship the imagery of dying means the same as it did in 6.2 and 6.10 to release from bondage this happened through the body of Christ which was a reference to Jesus death on the cross and so I think this, now that we've been released from the law, we're not held captive to it anymore. Our salvation has already been procured by Christ, and now we're free to obey the law. And I think this looks a lot different now that we can um, live and be obedient to the law, not because we have to, but because we're free to. And we're people who get to, as, as Stott said, law-abiding free people. And so I'm Maybe going to toss this question out to you guys. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But um, if we're faithfully to let our, our light shine before unbelievers, we're to be the salt and light of the world, what do you think the unbeliever observes as Christians, not as people who have to obey the law, but as people now who get to? What do you guys think? We don't live by the world lives. I was. You mentioned this corruption or bondage. I was. I turned to Romans eight. So he's he's the creation itself has been set free from its bondage to corruption, and obtains the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's not the way the world lives. It's in bondage to corruption, and and so I think our lives would would should reflect that. And the way we respond to each other, mm-hmm. to trials, and that's the real test, also, right? Uh, how we respond. So that's good, Papa. Really good. Anybody else? I think another like answer or another direction you come at it is that just like going to verse five for while, for while we were living in the flesh. If you turn to chapter eight, you go to verse eight uh, or verse five. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. And you jump ahead, you go to verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who, uh, whose, minds are set on, who, whose minds are set on the flesh, they're hostile to God. Like The phrase to be in the flesh is referring to the unbelieving state. But now as new believers who have union with Christ in his death and resurrection we are not we are no longer in the flesh but the flesh is still in us so we have this continual ongoing struggle against sin we hate it and we we strive with all of our being we're repulsed by it because we've been given a new nature by by God and Christ and so you see this this war being raged that the unbeliever does not have against sin this hatred towards sin and repentance from um, those desires that we once held before we um, were redeemed by Christ. That's really good. I think as as believers too, um, God's commands, once we're free from the law, they're no longer burdensome. They're privileged to uh, walk in and I think 
non-believers or unbelievers observing believers striving to uh, keep the law now as free people will see that um, Christianity is not just a set of commands that we try and you know pull our bootstraps up and grit our teeth to follow these commands that's not it at all we know that the law reveals our sin sends us back to the cross for uh, grace enabling grace to now go back to know how to live by the law empowered by the Holy Spirit which we'll get to in chapter 8 um, looking at verse 7 now Paul's going to deal with this question and what then shall we say that the law is sin so he's anticipating a potential objection here where the reader might go where the Jewish mind might be thinking and I think this is what you were getting at beforehand Carter that the Jewish Christian in Rome who had such a high and exalted view of the law is now wondering is Paul saying that the law itself is evil is he saying it's bad and Paul's going to answer that objection here in these next few verses and um, his response is that familiar denial that we've seen already by no means as Jerry would say what a ghastly thought that we saw in 6 1 and 6 15 we'll see it later in 7 13 and this is in the most emphatic sense he's using this term and the strongest denial that is possible and then he's going to go through and explain why a little bit and so his answer is is very explicit the law itself is is not bad and he'll end on this point in verse 12 the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good uh, but what does he say here and his answer is um, the rest of verse 7 yet if it had not been for the law I would not have known sin for I had would have not known what it is to covet if the law said you shall not covet so firstly we see that if it had not have been for the law Paul would not have known sin and so uh, the law defines sin for us the law demarcates what is sin before God and we know uh, what's the idea in the old catechism sin is is a transgression of God's law and it's the law that helps us know what is sin before a holy God we don't get to invent sin um, sin is not just our cultural sensitivities being crossed it's not what our culture defines as evil or wrong, it's defined by God's law and what he says sin is sin. And so the law defines sin. Uh, but also look here, he goes on and says, um, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said you shall, you shall not covet, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And so the law reveals sin, but it also has this stirring up uh, in, in, of sin in us. It's like the law exacerbates and provokes and stimulates sin. And um, our sin once kind of lied dormant in our hearts, but once it was exposed to the law, then I think Paul says it, it sees an opportunity. He uses that language twice. It's almost like the idea of an animal uh, waiting to... Um, in, in waiting in for its prey and it takes opportunity to jump on um, its prey that's sort of how sin works when it comes into contact with the law any thoughts on this section guys there's a there's a perversity uh, let, let me read um, the 10th commandment 
first because this is the reason why Paul uses and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house his field his male servant his female servant his ox nor his knocking or anything else that is your neighbor so it's pretty inclusive of just covenanting itself anything comparing ourselves to to other people um, but what is it about um, the law that there's, there's a perversity um, in it and I want to read from um, uh, how sin uses the law and this is this is um, an insight from Augustine y'all have probably heard this Mark's used this before but uh, this insight's the door to understanding the very anatomy of sin uh, what it is in its essence. So Augustine had a classic analysis of this point in his book, Confessions, a very interesting reading. But uh, near our vineyard there was a pear tree loaded with fruit. Though the fruit was not particularly attractive either in color or taste, I and some other youths conceived the idea of shaking the pears off the tree and carrying them away. There was a do not, you know, disturb the pear sign there. Uh, we set our uh, out late one night stole all the fruit that we could carry, and this was not to feed ourselves. We may have tasted a few, but then we threw the rest to the pigs. Our real pleasure, and this is the key, our real pleasure was simply in doing something that was not allowed. Um, I had plenty of better pairs of, of, of my own, and I only took the ones in order that I might be a thief. Once I'd taken them, I threw them away, and, and all I'd tasted in them was my own iniquity, which I enjoyed very much hmm. so he's 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 defining this perversity that's in sin uh, in covetousness that provoked him even more he did it because he wasn't supposed to do it did not walk on the grass and even a funnier illustration I'll just tell this one was from Chuck Swindoll one of my favorite old guy preachers um, he had taken his kids to the San Diego Zoo and they had all, of course, if you've ever been to that zoo, it's really magnificent. But they had a sign by the gorilla cage. Do not make eye contact with the gorillas. Or do not bare your teeth at the gorillas. They get very upset, you know, and this kind of thing. He said, fortunately, that day the gorillas were all sleeping. So he said, I, I, but I wanted to try my burying the teeth at a, at a gorilla. Now, his, this is six one dollar now. He said, just because it said, don't do that, I wanted to see if I could provoke the gorilla just like, you know, the sign said not to do. So what is it in us that wants to do something like that? Do not walk on the grass. Oh, tell your, let's get Matthew to testify. Tell your drill field story at North Avenue, North Georgia. And Josh can attest to this as well, like up in North Georgia. In Dahlonega, the, the drill field at the center part of campus is reserved for, uh, you know, activities and stuff like you're, you're welcome to go out there and play as much as you want, but it is kind of the central part of campus. Dorms are on one side, more of the academic buildings on the other, and you're not allowed to cut across it to go to class or, you know, again, feel free to exercise all you want out there, but don't cut across it. It's just kind of a, a rule um, that is pretty heavily enforced by the core. Um, 
And so it's just one of those things that while you're up there, you probably would have never had the desire to cut across the grass or go to class until they tell you not to, and then you, you want to try it one day. I never did. But you still have that every time you kind of look at it, which is that, that idea. So. Yeah, I think that's illustrating the principle here. The law, uh, not evil or bad in itself, but it stirs up sin. It produces that sin in us. But the sin, the law is not the problem. It's the sin inside of us. And um, verse, I'm going to go on to verse 11. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. And haven't we all probably experienced the deceptive nature of sin? It, it's fraudulent. It is out to mislead us and steer us down the wrong direction. Uh, as, as the Puritans would put it, it, sin presents the bait and hides the hook underneath. And what would you guys say? How, how does sin deceive us? <clears throat> Are you asking us or <laughs> anybody, <laughs> audience or panel? This, I think I mentioned this to you the other day when I was with you. But um, C.S. Lewis has a magnificent illustration of this. Uh, it's screw tape letters. I don't know if you, any of you, have read that, but uh, so screw tape says, you know, all we can do is to encourage humans to take the pleasures of which our enemy has produced, that's God, uh, at, a, at times or in ways or in degrees that he's forbidden. So there's no walk on the grass or whatever. So this is an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. So that's the formula. And this is according to C.S. Lewis. To get a man's soul and give him nothing in return, that's what really gladdens our Father's heart, meaning Satan's heart, to, to, to take his soul and not give anything in return. And that's kind of a, another illustration, I think, of what we're talking about. Yeah. Anybody else? How is sin by its very nature deceptive? I'm sure if we thought about it, we could come up with a huge list, but what would you guys say? How is sin deceptive? It basically presents superficial benefits and uh, tries to deceive you into going for the superficial benefits without considering the deeper loss or damages something like that. Yeah, it's great, Jesse. It, it presents superficial benefits and hides the consequences. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a list of nine different ways uh, that sin deceives us. Carter, I may have you read this. Um, these nine ways in which sin deceives. If, am I reading those? One through nine? Number one, sin gets us to misuse the law, convincing us that as long as we have not sinned outwardly and visibly, we are all right, forgetting what with, that with God the thoughts and intentions of the heart are all important. Number two, sometimes sin 
changes its tactics and tells us that everything is hopeless and we might as well keep on sinning. Number three, sin tells us that it does not matter whether we're holy or not holy. It says, why don't you keep on sinning so that grace may abound? Number four, sin deceives us by making us angry at the law, feeling that God is against us if He prohibits anything. If He were for us, we'd think He would let us do what we want to do and be happy. Number five, sin gets us to believe that the law is unreasonable, impossible, and unjust. Number six, sin makes us think very highly of ourselves. It makes us ask why we would be bound up by any law. Why shouldn't we become what Friedrich... Nietzsche called a superman or superwoman and be a law unto ourselves. Number seven, sin tells us that the law is oppressive, keeping us from developing the wonderful gifts and talents we have within us, all of which would emerge if only we did not have to be held back by God's commandments. Number eight, sin makes righteousness look drab and unattractive. Number nine, Sin causes us to discount the consequences of willful disobedience. It whispers what Satan said to Eve, You will not surely die. It says that the most pre preposterous idea is the whole world is hell, forgetting that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke of hell more often than anyone else in the Bible. Wow. Thanks, Carter. So I'll try and post those, but um, Papa, any last thoughts here as we sort of wrap things up no the good the good news is that of course and in, in we're not finished the chapter but he, he does uh, in 12 he does say so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and, and righteous and good and so what is what is what what uh, the law does is just reveal you know the sin in, in us and and uh, and then he shows us in the remaining of the chapter uh, you know how how to deal with that and, and the good news that our deliverer is the Lord Jesus Christ and then of course in, in chapter 8 it's really the spirit led man or woman right. that uh, fights this fight so. very good Papa will you um, pray and close us out Father God thank you for the truth of your word um, uh, Romans is, is theological uh, giant as far as uh, your theology and your doctrine uh, of, of how to live the Christian life how you O Lord uh, ordained all of this before the creation of the world uh, that that we should be eager and willing and not ashamed to preach the gospel and then ultimately you are our deliverer, you are our savior, you are our great high priest uh, and, and we have access to you 24-7 uh, and so we're uh, challenged to draw near uh, in, in our time of need and, and when we're afraid we put our trust in you thank you Lord Jesus for the hope of the gospel. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Remember, we'll be back in two weeks. We'll be off next week on July 3rd.